Before we begin, I want to tell you about a really funny and insightful movie podcast called I Saw What You Did. Every week, Millie DeCherico and Daniel Henderson share a double feature with a different wild theme and explore how our life stories impact the movies that we love. Millie and Danielle discuss cult classics through a feminist lens, have conversations about their film crushes throughout the ages, and provide hilarious hot takes on just about everything. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can follow I Saw What You Did wherever you get your podcasts. The Moth is a great podcast to hear true stories told by people from all walks of life in front of live audiences. And The Moth is bringing you a very special episode about a galaxy far, far away. In honor of May the 4th, or Star Wars Day, they're going to feature hilarious and heartwarming stories about the way that Star Wars has changed people's worlds. Listen now by searching The Moth on Spotify, Apple, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. I'm Eric Malinsky. So in my last episode, I explored role-playing video games and how the choices that you make as a character can reveal a lot of things about yourself. But there's another aspect of games that I hadn't really thought about. In some video games, you can choose what type of character you play. And for a lot of players, it's just kind of a lark where you get to be somebody that's just very different than yourself. But for some people, choosing a video game avatar that doesn't look like how you look at the moment can be very significant, could even be life-changing. Jay McAuliffe is a reporter in Arizona, and she has a podcast called We Must Ignite, which tells the story of women, non-binary people, and trans men. And she pitched us this really interesting idea for an episode because her journey into becoming transgender began with video games. I thought her story was really interesting, and so she is going to be our guide through this episode. Hey, Jay. Hey, Eric. So let's go back to the beginning. How did this whole journey start for you? It's really actually a little bit hard for me to determine sometimes, oh, what came first? Was I questioning my gender and starting to play female characters? Um, To Mm -hmm. clarify, I'm a trans woman. Um, Sometimes it's hard to tell a person's gender just based off their voice. Mm -hmm. Um, So I always used to, when I was very young, you know, I, I didn't have any other frame of reference. I would play male characters. And often, like there are so many games where by default, there's no choice. You are just a male character. But then, I don't know, something clicked and I started playing female characters when I could. And it really got going with The Sims. I played a ton of The Sims 3 and The Sims 4. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't played The Sims, basically you can create any sort of person, uh, avatar, you can create a whole family and run them through a bunch of like uh, just possible scenarios for like living life. Um, I'd say it's like a realistic fiction game uh, with a bunch of goofiness added on. Was there like an aha moment where you had where you're like, huh, I wonder if I could do this? Or like, like when, when you first decided to create a female avatar for yourself in The Sims, what were you thinking in that moment? Looking back now, it's hard to remember like what I was thinking at that moment, but it's kind of weird. The character that I ended up creating one of those like first avatars at the time i i didn't really look how i look now i was not presenting uh, as a woman in any way i didn't really know if that's what i wanted to do but i basically created what i thought was oh this could be the more 
feminine version of myself, the female character version of me, I was looking back through those characters, and it's a little weird how much they look like me now. Just, you can switch the character's gender. And I did that, added slightly longer hair, and, whoa, there I am. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, as, I mean, I'm probably you can tell from my for anyone who's been listening to my podcast for the last couple of years i'm a straight cis guy and i've played female characters in video games and and i did a, my episode about larping fairly recently i talked about even playing female characters in larps but it just never it never occurred to me that that somebody who's trans that this could be a really formative experience for them do you know like how common an experience this is I came to this story because this is something that I've heard a lot of my other trans friends talk about or mention, like that, oh, that they played video games and realized through video games and changing the gender of their character that, oh, this might be a real thing. So I decided to talk to an expert uh, named Bonnie Ruberg. I am uh, Bonnie Ruberg. I go by Bo. I am a professor at UC Irvine um, in the Department of Informatics, and my specialty is queerness and video games. Bo literally wrote the book on this. It's coming out in a few months called Video Games Have Always Been Queer. Video games can be a way to try out different identities, to explore your own identity, to have a space where you can play with identity. And one of the things that's unique about video games is they're not just what you see on the surface. They're not just the images that you see on the screen. They're about the interactions and the experiences you have. So did that did that ring true for you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's this game that I played called Life is Strange, where, I mean, you don't get to choose a character or anything like that. You play as this girl, Max Caulfield. She's a high school senior, and you play through a week in her life. Yeah, and it's similar. I mean, it's very much along the lines of the games I talked about in my last episode, the choose your own adventure type role playing games. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's very Telltale esque. <laughs> she gets this power in the game, though, to rewind time. I did now, it. Can you give I me actually an did it. A photographer who perfectly captured I'm a human the human time machine. Max. Something there really spoke to me because I think we all have that sort of wishful thinking. What if I could go back to that one moment and and change it? Like, what would happen then? And for me, I started thinking, what if I could just go back for a moment and have the clarity and the language to describe how I felt back in high school or earlier? Or what if I had been able to transition earlier? Yeah, because I think with video games, when you're playing a character, you will often have a much stronger identification with that character than if you're just watching a movie or reading a book and you refer to the character as I, like I was just doing this. So it sounds like that that you can, even before you can, you know, kind of change your gender at a game like The Sims, that you can even just have an experience in a video in a video game that suddenly resonates with you in a different way. Absolutely. So like this feeling with Max Caulfield and Life is Strange, this idea that like, oh, I was just in high school as and, and I was seen as a girl and no one thought no one thinks twice in the game because that's how the, the game is written. Like that was an amazing experience. And so like in real life, we can't rewind time. But I do think that, yeah, video games can give trans people and other people who just weren't privileged to have these kind of experiences. It can just help us have those experiences. Hmm. It can just be playing a character that you really, really identify with, even if it's really kind of fantastical and bizarre. I mean, that happened to Bo. 
For me personally, like as a queer person and as a non-binary person, I know that I'm most drawn to games that are not exactly representational. So like one of my favorite games is Octodad, which is a game about being an octopus who is trying to pass as a human dad. Hey, look, dad's up. Morning, daddy. And if you think about it, it's really about gender and sexuality and normativity because he's just trying to be like a normal, butch, white suburban dad. <laughs> but it's uh, really hard to like control this unruly octopus body. So it's, it's those kind of experiences that connect the most with me. Have you seen my Salty Hearts novel anywhere? <laughs> Oh, hush, you. That game is so funny. Uh, but aren't there video games where you can go through the whole game as sort of a male or female version of the main character, and it's basically the same game either way? Yeah. So my friend Brynmore Ruiz played Dragon Age a lot, and that's a game just like that. You can choose your character's gender, and that doesn't affect the choices you make in the game at all. I mean, well, it does affect the romance options because not every character is straight, but the big overarching plot of saving the world, that, that doesn't change. Dragon Age was one of the major games for me. This is Bryn Moore. It gave me that opportunity to explore the kind of decisions that I could make, not only as a person, but in terms of, you know, here is the, the person I'm presenting as, whether it's a gender identity or it's, of course, it's Dragon Age, so it's fantasy. So any of the races or appearances, all of that was up to me. And it was freeing in a way I don't think I would have originally anticipated because suddenly it was, you know, well, on this day, I'm feeling like this, so I can be this person or um, I'm feeling, you know, more feminine on this day, so I can, you know, kind of present it as a more um, fantasy version of myself. It was my first taste of freedom, essentially. Well, I know for this episode, you talk with a bunch of friends beyond just Bryn Moore. Did you find that they all had pretty similar experiences to the one that you had with The Sims? Yeah, there was a, they were pretty similar. There was a common thread that started emerging as I talked to my friends and started talking to other trans people about this. There are so many games with character customization. Whether they actually meant to do this or not, a lot of those games actually kind of incorporate gender transitions into the gameplay. So there's this one game, Saints Row 4. It is a supernatural spy thriller with an alien invasion thrown in. Um, it's a really bizarre game, but it has some really robust character customization. And my friend Julie Jollis really used to love that game. In, in Saints Row, you play the leader of the Third Street Saints. And you generally play kind of an asshole who's an idiot regardless of gender, so hashtag equality. There's random places throughout the game that you can get, I guess, plastic, digital plastic surgery where like you you custom you can recustomize your face. It's also the only place you can get a haircut, uh, oddly enough. And you can also change your gender. And regardless of whether you're coming in for a buzz cut or the combination of every transition surgery possible, it's $500. So it's either a stupidly expensive haircut or the best gender transition plan ever. Sign me the f up. What she found really surprising was after she changed her character, she gave this character an amazingly cheap transition. 
other players who, you know, she talked with or glanced at her screen, they didn't make a big deal out of it. I kind of laughed that no one said anything, but at the same time, it's like, if no one says anything, that's kind of cool. Someone's like, oh, new haircut. And that's like the best response ever. If you want to be a true ally, when when you meet someone, when, when, when you reunite with an old friend who's transitioned, just say, oh, new haircut. And, and, and you get all the ally points. You are the best ally. I hope someday in real life I get to actually use, the, <laughs> use that. Uh-huh. So are there other games like that where making a gender transition is actually like part of the game mechanics? For me, before playing Saints Row 4, I had not been able to do that in any games. But I also talked with another one of my friends, Anne Bazarnik, and she was telling me she had actually that same experience playing RuneScape. It's a game a lot of kids used to play in the early 2000s. It's kind of an online medieval fantasy version of The Sims. There is, in the game, a character called the Makeover Mage, who for 3,000 gold coins would change your character's gender. And this actually, I feel, influenced a lot of my own personal inner conceptions of like uh, the ability to change gender, right? I thought of it in this idea of like this, this wizard or something like casting a spell and and me, uh, you know, having something be different suddenly, you know, in, in the same ways uh, I did in the game, right? Because you could just go and, and switch your gender at any time. And I, th- I thought that was a very like nice and pleasant idea. And I was like, oh, wouldn't it be just so wonderful if I could, uh, you know, pay my 3,000 gold coins and... Uh, <laughs> So actually, I have another question. Everybody you talked with, when they're having these experiences and exploring gender in the games, how old are they? The people I spoke to, it was often um, in adolescence, uh, the teenage years, sort of around like 10 years old, up to around 16. For me, I was around, I was probably around 18 when I really consciously started doing this. And, you know, for a lot of kids, it's a really tough time to deal with these complex feelings of gender. I mean, it was hard for Anne. The, the way I grew up, it was very strictly gendered, right? It, it was behave as a male behaves, don't do anything uh, vaguely feminine. Masculinity, specifically toxic masculinity, was very strictly enforced. And so I felt like a sort of uh, shame uh, interacting in physical spaces uh, along these lines, right? So uh, I wouldn't tell anyone about any of these things, but online i had basically free reign to talk about these things without any of the fears of repercussions that i might have had in you know my actual everyday life so it sounds like video games aren't just a place to experiment with your gender they can also be a safe space or i mean sort of like a virtual safe space yeah i mean that's the hope um i mean anne was very afraid that her friends or family would like discover what she was doing in these games. A lot of the times I feel I was too I was too shameful and I was too paranoid to play a, a female character all of the time, right? So a lot of the time I would have a male character because I was worried if like someone like came in my room or something and like saw my screen, they'd be like, why are you playing a girl character? And then I'd have to have a really like fumbling explanation of why because I hadn't heard like the stock arguments for like why guys play girls in video games yet. So I I didn't have anything to go off other than just like, oh, well, uh, (laughs) that's kind of how I want to be. 
But there's also another problem with creating safe spaces online, um, because a lot of games are multiplayer. Right, because you're you're playing against other people and you can interact with them. Yeah, you can talk to them. I mean, you can talk to them over voice chat. And like I said, it's sometimes hard to tell a person's gender just based off their voice. And my friend Brynmore, who was talking about Dragon Age earlier, also loved playing Overwatch. I'm back in the game. Overwatch, by the way, if people don't know, is a really, really popular game. It's very cartoonish um, and sort of steampunky, and you're kind of shooting at everybody on screen. But the characters also have these really, really interesting backstories. Yeah, Overwatch can be a lot of fun, but Brynmore discovered that interactions between players, it doesn't always have that same mood. To say that the community can be toxic would be an incredible understatement. And a lot of us who are trans or non-binary, if we have to play with other players, say in like competitive, we won't do voice chat because we don't want to take that risk of being like, oh, you're a girl. Like, no, actually, I'm not. And then it's like, but you sound like a girl. And it's like, yeah, but I'm kind of not. And then it's too much to deal with almost. It's like, you know, I'm only going to know this person for the five minutes that we're playing together and then I'm never going to have to talk to him ever again in my life. But I would just rather like, yeah, we're just going to go and play the game. You can tell me I'm bad at whoever I'm playing, but please don't ask me about my gender. (laughs) Well, I know that, um, I mean, toxic fandom is a huge issue. And of course, I mean, it's of course particularly bad in video games, Gamergate, you know, being a notorious example. So were the people you talked with, were they able to find a community in the games? Yeah, they definitely were. So, as I said before, my friend Anne Bazarnik played RuneScape a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a fantasy game. It does a lot of the things we've already talked about. You create your own avatar, um, you plop them into this virtual world, and, and I guess make choices. And then she ended up starting to find people in it. It's an online game. And she found those people at a fishing hole. Catching fish is actually a really big way to make money in the game. While it was mostly an inactive activity, you would just kind of sit there, click once every couple of minutes, wait for your inventory to fill up, and then go run to the bank to go drop off all your, your fish. It was very social because there were a bunch of people gathered around at these specific fishing spots and basically doing nothing, right? So it became a little, uh, like... I don't know, mode of interaction with other people uh, gathered around, clicking every few minutes and not really doing much beside that. All those interactions are happening through text chat. But, you know, RuneScape is a game where there's really, I'd say, a lot of younger players. Mm-hmm. You know, they're kids trying to meet each other online. So with Anne's case, their parents were worried about, like, stalkers and personal information. Um, but she did end up opening up to another player. Um, this player was named Poseidon. I don't even remember how like our interactions started, but I remember that uh, they were one of the first people that I had talked about any sort of uh, like gender-related ideas to um, outside of myself. Right? You know, it it was the first externalization of uh, thoughts which had been private. I guess uh, in in the space of discussing with this one weird 13-year-old who I met, you know, when I was, like, 11. And Brynmore, um, they played Final Fantasy XIV, um, and they figured out a way to find a safe space by joining a guild. 
Well, I know that I know that Final Fantasy fourteen is a big like multiplayer online game that's set in a you know magical medieval world. And I know I know what a guild was like in real historic medieval times. But how exactly does a guild work in the game? Um, I kind of describe it as a club, uh, a club of players in a big multiplayer online game. You can uh, band together and do some of the quests together. It's yeah, really, really one big club and an easy way to meet new people. And this guild, um, extremely accepting and open um, for queer and trans people. It was, you know, we could say like, you know, oh, this is my name and this is how I present and you can use like these pronouns for me. It's okay if you use my character pronouns, you know, that sort of thing. Eventually, we would all just kind of open up to each other like, oh, yeah, by the way, this is why I do this because you know, like I can't be this way outside of this game. After everyone had all these really positive experiences in the games, did that actually help them come out in the real world? For a lot of people, yeah. Um, And actually after that point, those games just became games. I mean, I found that definitely for me personally. When I play The Sims, I play all sorts of characters now. Hmm. But for a lot of people, I mean, games are still super important. I mean, Bryn Mawr now works in a video game store. Um, they wear LGBTQ pins so that people know like, that the shop is queer friendly. And a man started coming into Bryn Mawr's store with his son, um, who's trans. He was just saying that he was thankful that he could see, you know, someone who was, you know, happy at their job and happy in their position and that I was confident enough in who I am and my identity that I could, you know, wear those pins in an environment that is genuinely not friendly um, towards the the LGBT community and that, yeah, that I felt confident enough in myself that I could do that. And that is what he wants for his son. Well, that's really nice. So it actually helps them be kind of kind of help mentor the next generation. Yeah, I asked Julie Jollis if she had any advice for young people who are closeted right now and mm-hmm. you know too afraid to express that even in a video game. I would tell them to to try not to be afraid to be yourself. Like obviously sometimes it's not safe to be yourself, but if you're alone in your room, that's your space. You can be you there. If you're still living with your parents or if you have a conservative roommate or something like that, then, you know, maybe your room isn't your space all the time. But, you know, if you can play a video game like at midnight when you're just having your headphones in, you know, don't be afraid to to play as characters you more closely identify with. And if you're not sure, experiment. So what about like uh, video game companies? I mean, if you know people are listening who work at video game companies, is there anything they can learn from all this? Studios are really trying hard for more representation of queer and trans people, but they do have a lot of catching up to do. You see, historically, like the video game industry is pretty homophobic. Um, and unfortunately, some of the attempts to have a trans character in a game have been a bit of a mess, like in Mass Effect Andromeda. In this big epic sci-fi game, you meet this character and she immediately dead names herself. Could you also explain what, what dead naming is? Yeah, um, for trans people, your dead name is just your name assigned at birth. Um, it's your name before you transitioned. 
it is not something that a trans person is going to bring up in casual conversation. Um, it's definitely not polite to ask trans people what their dead name was. And the writers who created this trans character for Mass Effect Andromeda really should have known that. What brought you out here to Andromeda? Back home, I was filling test tubes in some dead-end lab. People knew me as Stefan, but that was never who I was. I knew what I could do, and I knew who I wanted to do it as. Hanley Abrams, Andromeda Explorer. That's me. Feels good. Feels right. Funny enough, that studio three years before, with the game Dragon Age Inquisition, did have a pretty positive representation of a trans character. Um, hmm. But as I said, it's all over the place. But you, do you think things are getting better? Well, Bonnie Ruberg is pretty optimistic. She says there's more representation behind the scenes these days, and there are even more queer gaming events, too. You know, when you, when you go to a conference where people are talking about making games and you see other queer and trans people, you're like, oh my gosh, like there is a place for me in this industry, right? And she's excited about the possibility indie games have. They have a lot more leeway compared to big studio games and can appeal directly to trans and queer players. For example, there's a game that I love uh, called Realistic Kissing Simulator. And it's a game where two people play, they stand at the same keyboard, they just have two faces on either side of a screen, and each face has a long floppy tongue. And they uh, kind of intertwine their tongues. There's no goal to the game, there are no rules to the game. And I interviewed the people who made it recently, who are, are queer game makers and trans game makers, and they said that the way that you play that game is really designed to speak to their experiences as trans people because it's about like having a body that, that feels like it doesn't quite fit you, but you're still trying to find a new form of like closeness with people. I've actually seen that game because it, it's really funny. It's very cartoonish. There are actually videos on YouTube of people trying to play it and they're all just cracking up. No, there's, there's so many games like that, realistic something simulator. Yeah. So what about you? I mean, now that you've you've talked with with your friends about all this and talked with um, Bo about this, did any parts of their story kind of resonate with you the most? I'm a trans woman, and I used to feel like in games I had to prove my femininity or I had to be very feminine and or in in real life too now, you know, to be seen as a woman. Mm -hmm. But now, I mean... In the characters that I play, they still reflect me a bit. And in how I exist in the real world, I'm a lot more comfortable with dressing masculine and feminine. Because that's honestly how we all are, a combination of masculinity and femininity. So now my characters are all sorts of, you know, like I play guys and girls and I feel free and comfortable with that. And it's funny, I mean, how does that reflect you back onto video games and the idea of customization, you know, the idea that you you can customize yourself? You know, last night I was playing The Sims 4 and I pulled out that character of myself and I changed her a bit. I ended up doing things that I wouldn't do in, in the real world and I don't really want to necessarily. And it was still really fun to do that, to, to potentially see those choices play out in front of me. All right, well, that is it for this week. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Jay McAuliffe. And uh, who else are we thanking? Yeah, I want to thank Bonnie Ruberg, Anne Bizarnik, Julie Jollis, and Brynmore Ruiz for talking to me for this story. It was really great hearing all your experiences. Cool. And also, where can people follow you? 
Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at jmcauliffe. And my podcast is called We Must Ignite. My assistant producer is Stephanie Billman. You can like the show on Facebook. I tweet at emalinsky and Imagine Worlds Pod. And the show's website is imaginaryworldspodcast.org. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.